All right. Well, normally we, uh, we, we read God's Word together and then we uh, pray. We're going uh, to change things up a little bit this morning, a little, little, uh, little spice here. We're gonna, uh, we're, I want us to read all of Luke 15 together. We're coming to a very a pivotal chapter in the, the Gospel of Luke. This is a, a, a chapter in which Luke lays out, I believe, kind of the heart of, of, his, of his Gospel in some ways, kind of some things that he's very concerned with. And so uh, we're going to read all the chapter together. So let's do this. Let's, um, let's, we're going to uh, stand together and pray, and then we're going to be seated, and then we'll, then we'll read the whole chapter. And that way, for people that might be a little harder to stand for that long, they can, they can remain seated. So if you would, stand with me now, and we'll pray, and then we'll read God's Word together here in, in just a moment. And Heavenly Father, again, we're just very grateful this morning for our opportunity to, to read your Word together and, and study. We thank you for the time of worship that we've had thus far. We thank you for how you have protected our church, and you've allowed us to uh, worship you, and, and we, we pray that you'd continue to allow us to worship you. We pray that you would uh, pr- protect us. We pray that you would uh, be with the church as we consider this, this new kind of church year beginning uh, here in May and, and give us a, a great, uh, great year of, of growth in godliness and our growth in understanding you and our growth in having a, a passion for those who do not know you yet. We pray that you would open our hearts to understand your word this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're seated, please turn with me to Luke 15. And Luke 15, we, we come to it and we encounter what look like uh, three stories, but in reality, Luke 15 contains one narrative structure, and, and Jesus is telling a parable in, in three parts. And we're going to spend, I'm not quite sure how long, going through these, these different parts. It's, it's going to take us more than just this morning. I, I believe that to be true. But uh, if, if you're, just turn to Luke 15. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the, the entire chapter together and, and see how these three parables are really part of one larger parable that Jesus is trying to, to teach here. So I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property 
that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older brother, the older son, was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, father, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave a young goat to me that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate And be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As I mentioned before, this is a a crucial chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Luke loves those who are marginalized in society. He loves those who are at the fringes of society. And here in Luke chapter 15, he's going to tell us some very important things about how you and I are to relate to those who are lost and how we should not relate to those who are lost. And he's going to tell us some crucial things that help us understand the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel of Luke. Now, I'm not sure how far we're going to get in our, in our message this morning. This may not be kind of a, a typical sermon. What we're going to do this morning is kind of lay some, some foundational truths that will help us understand that the context. We're going to kind of try to understand the, the characters that are, 
that are a, a part of the story that Jesus tells. We're going to try to understand the, the characters that, that Jesus is interacting with as he tells this story, and we're going to try to understand some, some truths about how we are to relate to the lost, but we're not really going to get all that far into Luke chapter 15, I don't think. In fact, uh, you may be looking at your bulletins and you say, oh, there's, there's three points. Um, don't get too excited. I don't think we're going to get past the first point this morning. But if you're a person who just longs to have the blanks filled in, uh, I think the blanks are like sheep and coin. Okay, so lost sheep, lost coin, you're good to go. You, you, you won't be like doing this the next couple weeks as you wait for us to, to continue through Luke 15. But uh, what I want to do is, again, just kind of talk a little bit, uh, kind, of, kind of a discussion this morning to help us understand what's going on in Luke 15 because these parables are so crucial to understand, to help us understand what Luke's getting at. So we need to take some time to make sure we understand what's going on here. Let me begin by just asking you a question. And the question is, do you love the lost? What, what do I mean by lost? When I say lost, what I mean, I mean unbelievers, those who aren't Christians, those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons that we call people who aren't Christians lost is because of Luke 15, right? Do you love the lost? Do you have a, belief, a love for unbelievers, for people who are, are not Christians, for those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus Christ? Do you love those people? And, and how can you answer that question honestly? Well, to know whether or not you love those who are lost, you have to look at how you respond to those who are lost. When I was about, probably about eight years old, maybe nine, my family was living in San Antonio, Texas. And my grandmother came to visit us in San Antonio, and she sat my brother and I down, my younger brother and I down, and she said, I, I have some gifts for you. And I'm excited, I love gifts. And she said, um, these gifts kind of represent your, your personalities, the things that you guys are, are interested in that make you unique individuals. I thought, well, this one's good. And she, and she said, uh, so Daniel, here's your gift. Uh, it's an old camera uh, because I know how much you love photography. Now, I didn't know that I loved photography, but it sounded like a pretty cool gift. All right, thank you, Grandma. Yeah, um, took a picture. Um, very excited about this. Now, uh, then she said to my brother, she said, now, Andrew, I know that you're the uh, animal lover in the family, how much you love nature and, and love animals, and so I've got you a subscription to Ranger Rick, you know, kind of that, that magazine for kids, and, and here's uh, the, the gift that came with it is these, these postcards with, with animals on them on one side, and on the back it says all these, these facts about these animals, and she gave that to my brother, and I'm, I'm thinking, I like animals. I went to my mom and dad. I said, Mom and dad, what's the deal? Uh, Grandma says that Andrew is the animal lover in the family, but I, I love animals. I, I might dedicate my life to helping animals. And <laughs> Grandma just gave Andrew the subscription to Ranger Rick. And my, my parents said, you love animals? I said, absolutely. I, lo I will watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I love, I love to see animals eaten and stuff. And I just, I love, I love animals. I love hamburgers. I Bacon. I <laughs> Love them. Love them. She said, and my parents said, well, look, just because your brother got the subscription to Ranger Rig doesn't mean, like, your career is doomed. You, you, can, you can look at those postcards, too, and, and you can read his magazine. I said, I'm going to. I'm going to, I'm going to learn all those things about those animals, and I'm going to show you guys. 
So I went in the living room. Now, my, my, this is kind of the, this is the story as best as I remember it, okay? Um, I went in the, in the living room, and there are the, the postcards with the animals. And I look at them, and I say, yeah, I'm going to learn every fact on this card about these animals. I sit down, and I look at the TV, and, and Dukes of Hazard is on. So I watch Dukes of Hazard instead. And then all throughout the rest of the week, um, different things come up that kind of keep me from looking at those cards. Or I might pick them up and look at the back, and go, oh, that's kind of boring, and put it down. By the end of the week, I realized something. I really didn't love animals that much at all. I found them kind of boring. And I didn't want to dedicate my life to, like, work at a zoo or something. I, I would much rather, like, drive the General Lee and, and be a Dukes of Hazard person than, than work with animals. And so I, I realized I, I don't love animals. My actions told me and demonstrated to me I, I'm not a big nature guy. My, my brother is. My grandma was right on that. Do you love the lost? You may say, I would hope all of us who would make a claim to be a believer would say, yeah, I, I love the lost, or at least I, I desire to love the lost, but do our actions demonstrate that we actually do indeed love the lost? Sometimes our actions demonstrate that we are responding to the lost in very unbiblical ways. For example, we ignore the lost. We when I ask you, do you love the lost? Yes. And I said, well, tell me about some of the redemptive relationships you have with unbelievers. You say, well, you know, I don't really have any close friendships, redemptive friendships with people who aren't believers. And, and then we'd say, well, you know, really? Do you know there are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world? There are uh, over a billion people in the world who would make claims to be of, of no religion, you know, secular humanist or agnostic or deist or atheist, um, no religion. There are almost a billion Hindus. There are people, millions and millions of people who are parts of, of different religions. And, and you would tell me, I just can't find anyone who's not a Christian. Maybe you're not looking very hard. Maybe you don't love the lost because your lifestyle doesn't reflect a person who desires those who are lost, to be brought into relationship with Jesus Christ. Another unbiblical response that shows that we don't really love the lost is to respond in a judgmental way toward those who are unbelievers, who Scripture would describe as, as unrepentant sinners. I don't know if you remember, but a, a few months ago, we looked at Luke chapter 6, and as we looked at Luke chapter 6, we found that only God can judge humanity in the sense of, of condemnation. Uh, Luke, uh, Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, we judge wrongly. John 18.15 says we judge according to the flesh. God judges with the right aim for his own glory and, and worship. Acts 7, 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and, and worship me. You and I are hypocritical as we engage in, in judging people. And so, uh, in a sense of, of condemning sinners, a person who looks at sinners and says, um, uh, those people are, are, are bad, and we look at them with kind of derision uh, and judging them, condemnation, that's a person who, who doesn't love the lost. So, a hard attitude that ignores those who are without Christ, a hard attitude that judges those in a sense of condemning them, uh, is a person who doesn't love the lost. Those hard attitudes display a lack of love, a lack of genuine care for those who are unbelievers, those who have not responded in faith to Jesus Christ. 
as we look at Luke 15, we find out that God really loves the lost. God, the Heavenly Father, has a passionate love, a fervor for those who are not part of his family, for those who have been separated from him because of sin. God is one who seeks the lost. God is one who finds the lost. And God is one who rejoices with great joy and celebration when the lost enter into relationship with him. God is one who who truly loves the lost. And what I I hope you gain from our study of Luke 15, as we look through this, I, I hope you gain this point. You and I should rejoice when the lost repent. That's what we're going to see as we look at at Luke chapter 15, that a person who truly loves the lost has a great joy and a great rejoicing whenever lost people come into relationship with Jesus Christ. The, The person who really loves the lost rejoices when the lost repent. What I want to do this morning again, though, is is set the foundation here. I want us to look at these the characters that kind of inform the story, and then to look at some principles that help us understand our unbelie- our uh, fellowship with those who are lost, our relationship with those who are unbelievers. So the first point that I want us to consider, and really this is the only thing we're going to get through this morning, I believe, the first thing that I want us to consider are, are three parables and one theme. That's your, your first blank that you can fill out this morning for those of you who are blessed of the Lord and take notes. Uh, three parables, one theme, and we see this in verses 1 through 3, and, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we're just going to talk about the characters that are involved here, and then lay out some principles here in just a moment. So, uh, verse, 15, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15 says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Okay, now, so who's, who's the, who are these people that are coming to hear Jesus that are drawing near in order to be able to hear him and to listen to what he's saying? Well, keep your finger in in Luke chapter 15, and let's turn back to Luke chapter 5. The first people that we see here are tax collectors. And remember, we went through Luke chapter 5 some months ago. And in Luke chapter 5, in verse 27, we were introduced to this guy named Levi, this, this disciple of Jesus that would be called Matthew. And look at verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. It says, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And remember, as we went through this story, we noticed this also in verse 29. It says, Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others, these are other sinners, reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And let me just kind of remind you of a couple things that we saw as we looked at these sinners and tax collectors in Luke chapter 5. First of all, we talked about tax collectors. Remember, tax collectors were those who had been entrusted by the Roman government to collect taxes. A tax collector would have some freedom in order to make a living for himself, to, to charge the rate that he desired to, to charge. And so there'd be a percentage of the tax that would go to the Roman government, and there'd be a percentage of the tax that he was able to keep for himself. Tax collectors were, first of all, then, viewed as traitors. A tax collector was one who was engaging in an activity that supported the hated Roman government. 
A tax collector was a traitor to his people. A tax collector was also a thief. By the very nature of his job, he was enriching himself off the backs, out of the purses of his fellow Jewish people. The disdain that Jews had for those who were involved in collecting taxes was very great. In fact, if you decided that you were going to be a tax collector, you were basically cutting yourself off from all decent society, Jewish society. A Jew would not allow you to testify in court because by by your very profession you were a cheat and a liar. And if you decided to become a tax collector, you were unable to participate in worship in the synagogue. And so a tax collector, in the Pharisee's mind, was a person who had decided to exclude themselves from the covenant people of God. A tax collector had made the decision to separate himself from relationship with God and God's people. Turn back another chapter or two to Luke chapter 3. Again, keeping your finger in Luke 15. And we also see Luke talking about sinners in Luke chapter 3. Remember, John the Baptist is, is preaching in, around the Jordan area, and he's proclaiming the baptism of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. And he, Luke quotes Isaiah here, and then verse 7 says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that had come out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? But bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? In other words, these are people who recognize that their standing with God was not where it needed to be. They recognized that they were sinners, and they recognized that there needed to be repentance. They needed to turn from their sin and turn to faith in God. And so John tells them, if you're making that decision to do that, here are some things that that bear out that your repentance is genuine. And for example, he tells the crowds in verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors, remember tax collectors, these are people who have separated themselves from the covenant people of God. They've separated themselves from being able to participate in worship. There's hope for them says, teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, John says, well, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers come to him, what shall we do? He says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And the people were fill, as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answers, he says, look, I'm not the Christ. Now, I say all that, I go back to Luke chapter, you can turn back to Luke 15. I say all those things and and draw your attention to other places in Luke where he's talked about sinners and tax collectors to just make this point. These people that are coming to Jesus, first of all, they're people who have been marginalized in Jewish life. There are people who have not been recognized as part of the religious crowd. There are people who are on the fringes of society, not welcome in, in polite circles. Another thing that I think it's really important to notice here, 
And, and we're going to flesh this out more as, as we talk about it later this morning, Lord willing, and certainly in the weeks to come. But the other thing that's kind of interesting to think about here, these are people that recognize their standing before God. I mean, there's some irony in using the term sinners to describe just one class of people, right? I mean, all of us are sinners. The Pharisees were sinners, and they were in greater danger in terms of the relationship with God because they were people who didn't recognize that they were sinners. And so the sinners that Luke describes in his gospel are people who come to the point of realization that they're sinners. God sovereignly allows their hearts to be softened, and they recognize my relationship with God is, is not where it needs to be. And very frequently, this is happening at, at the margins of society. And these people recognize their own desperate condition, and there's a desire in their hearts that God sovereignly places there to be brought into right relationship with God again. And so, verse 1 all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. We're not going to develop this too much right now, but I think that's also an important part, an important point. Sometimes we, as, as believers, as we went to love the lost, we have this desire to, to kind of like force people to change. And, and what's happening here, these are people who recognize that they're sinners, but they're recognizing their, their need to turn, to change their life, for things to be different. And so they're, they're drawn to to Christ's message of righteousness. They're not drawn to Christ's message of lawlessness and continuing in an unhappy conduct of life. We'll talk more about that later. Verse 2, though. So that's who's coming. Now let's talk about what Jesus' response is. Verse 2, it says, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How is Jesus responding well, Luke uses this word in the mouths of the Pharisees and scribes, this Greek word that means to, to receive favorably, to, to, to welcome, to eagerly anticipate relationship with. This Greek word, the word that Luke uses here, occurs other places in Scripture. For example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, Simeon is said to be uh, eagerly waiting for the consolation of Israel. He, he was waiting for this, this time of Israel to be, to be fulfilled. Luke 12, 36, Jesus says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding. There's an eager expectation, a welcoming, a favorable reception. In the, the book of Romans, Paul talks about welcoming someone in the Lord, uh, welcoming them. It's that same word, welcoming, receiving favorably. Philippians 2, 29 says, receive him in the Lord, welcome him in the Lord with all joy and, and honor such men. Titus 2.13 tells us, using that same word, waiting for our blessed hope. There's an eager expectation of our, our hope being fulfilled. Uh, Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so all the uses of this term don't just describe this, this person receiving like, a, like, like just kind of passively. So Jesus is standing there and, and this, this sinner comes up next to him and is like, hey, what's up? You want to eat, don't you? Okay, uh, let's go eat. That's not the type of reception. There's an eager anticipation. A person who is going to fellowship with Jesus, as they come to him, there is an understanding and a recognition that, that Jesus wants to be with them. He has a, a passionate desire to, to be in relationship with them. He, he welcomes them. He receives them. 
How does Jesus respond to the sinner? How does Jesus respond to the person at, at the margins of, of society? He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm glad you finally recognized how valuable I am. Now, we're going to set some, some ground rules in our relationship, and if, if you don't do all these things, then, then uh, it's over. There's a welcome and a fellowship and a participation in relationship here. And the Pharisees don't like it. They don't like that Jesus is breaking bread and participating in fellowship with those who don't meet their standards of what righteousness looks like. So who are these people that are coming to Jesus? Well, they're they're people that are at the margins of society, those who are recognized as as sinners, as tax collectors, as those who've, who've separated themselves from the covenant people of God. What is Jesus' response to them? It's to, to welcome them, to eagerly desire, eagerly desire a relationship with them. And how do the Pharisees respond then? That's kind of the third group to look at here. How do the Pharisees respond? Verse 2 says they, they grumble. They grumble. They're not happy. That guy's eating with sinners. I was thinking about grumbling this week. Um, Whitney went down to Texas. Uh, her, her grandmother passed away th- this week, and she went down, uh, by God's grace, she was able to get there before her grandmother passed away to, to, to tell her goodbye. And um, so, I, so I've been with four children this, this week. Um, so, so if I fall asleep during my message, uh, please just, just wake me up. Um, but she, I, as I was thinking about grumbling this week, I thought, boy, I, I have a lot of illustrations of, of grumbling. But then I re- realized they all involved me, so I'm not going to share those. <laughs> but grumbling, that, 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 that discont- I don't like the way things are going. I don't like the way that the kids spilled the milk. I don't like the way that this meeting didn't work out the way that I wanted to. I don't like this. I don't like that grumbling. That grumbling is a lack of contentment with the situations in which God has placed us. It's, it's a grave sin. And the Pharisees look at how God in the flesh, how Jesus Christ is responding to those that they don't believe should be in relationship with God, and they grumble. They're upset about it. They're discontent. They grumble about his reception of sinners. There's even a Pharisaical saying, let not a man associate with the wicked, let not a man associate with the wicked, even to bring him the law of God. The Pharisees had obliterated God's concept of grace. Their heart attitude is a terrible heart attitude. There are these people at the margins of society that, that yes, are engaged in wicked conduct, sinful conduct. And there are two responses to them in verses 1 and 2. The response of Jesus is to welcome, to be excited about, to to eagerly anticipate the possibility that these people can engage in, in a relationship with God. The hard attitude of the Pharisee is to grumble and to have a lack of rejoicing that the lost could be found. 
Remember that the main theme of Luke chapter 15 is that you and I should rejoice when the lost repent. We should rejoice when the lost are found. The Pharisee has a far different heart attitude. Now, what I want to do in, in the time that we have left this morning is I want to present to you seven truths about fellowshipping with unbelievers. These are some things that I think might help us as we think about right and wrong applications of, of this idea of, of welcoming sinners, because I, I think this is a, uh, an issue that many believers struggle with. They say, okay, I know that I need to, to be reaching those, the margins of society, the margins of, of life, those who, who aren't walking with the Lord in, in, that, that are in the, the center of our, our culture, those the margins, the center, the edges, the, the middle in between. I need to be reaching these people, but, but how? And sometimes, quite frankly, and I think this is good to kind of lay foundationally before we start going through these parables and talking about being lost and found, quite frankly, sometimes Christians do some weird things to, to so-called be like Jesus and, and reach the lost. Um, they engage in, in some, some sinful activities in, in the name of, of reaching people for Christ, or they engage in some, some foolish activities. I had a professor one time that uh, I was at a week-long class at, at Moody, and uh, the professor came in one morning. He's like, yeah, I had a hard time sleeping last night. And so I decided to go uh, walk the, the streets of Chicago. I was like, All right. So he goes, yeah, about, so about 3 o'clock in the morning, I, was, I just decided to go um, find, find some people and, and, and be like Jesus and, and, and interact with them. And so at 3 o'clock in the morning, by himself, uh, he, he found like um, th- there was a, a, a prostitute, and he engaged in a conversation with her. And I said, you know, uh, a prof, um, timing, you know, uh, good idea, maybe not by yourself at three o'clock in the morning. I, I don't know. It just kind of seems like a foolish thing to me, you know, that some, some people can interpret that wrongly. But how, so what are the, how do we rightly relate to those who are at the margins of society that we want to love, that we want to welcome, we want to have fellowship with, we want to receive them eagerly? Let, let me just kind of give you seven thoughts that I've had as from Scripture that, that I think help us as we think about how to rightly relate with, with unbelievers, with those who are lost. The first truth that I think is important for us to consider is this. Uh, we are sinners. We are converted sinners. In other words, as we approach those who are sinners, as I mentioned, this is kind of an interesting term to use because it's not like we say, well, there's us and then there's sinners. There's the righteous and then there's sinners. All sinners are righteous sinners. They're, they're people that by the, the grace of God have been, as Kevin mentioned this, this great word earlier in his testimony, they've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. They've been made righteous, declared righteous by God. So it's not like we approach sinners as the uh, perfectly righteous who uh, sin sounds so strange and foreign to us, but I'm very interested in finding out about your sin, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. We approach sinners as sinners, as converted sinners by the grace of God. If we don't have that understanding as we engage in relationship with unbelievers, we don't have the understanding that we also are sinners, then we don't understand the gospel. If you're engaging in relationships with unbelievers and yet you don't understand the nature of your own sin to some degree, then you don't understand the gospel, how God saved you and delivered you from your sin by God's grace, and therefore, you have nothing to offer an unbeliever. We are, number one, we are converted sinners. 
you know, by the way, that's one of the reasons I think it's so hard for us to be like Jesus exactly as we engage in relationships with unbelievers, because as we engage in relationships with unbelievers, unlike Jesus, we're in danger of participating in some of the same activities that they are. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So, number one, we are converted sinners. Number two, I think it's also for us to remember, uh, the Scripture tells us we are to seek out real and close friendships with unbelievers. We are to seek out real and close friendships with those who are lost. First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking about standards of, of morality, and he talks about the, the need to discipline a person who is engaged in, in sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers of, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, I, he's saying, look, I didn't tell you to like get it, out of the world and, and never let your delicate, pure hands be stained by even be, by being defiled by someone who's, who's a sinner. He says, no, what I'm saying, what, what I was talking about is the way that you conduct yourself in relationship with those who claim to be Christians and yet live in a way that's contrary to it. But don't be shocked whenever people who don't love Jesus Christ act in a way that's not in accordance with his teachings. That's, that shouldn't be a shocking thing to us. I think I've mentioned before that, you know, sometimes I've been at uh, conferences where they're, they're talking about how to counsel people who are engaged in sin, and, and uh, the, the speaker will be talking about different sins, and he'll say something like, you know, and this, I was talking to this person, and he, he said, um, boy, I really hate my wife, and, and the, the whole audience will go, <gasps> you know, like there's an audible gasp as the sin of someone else is described in an illustration, like, I can't, I can't imagine that sort of sin existing in this world with my, my, my pure heart could never even imagine such a sin. You know, it's a dangerous way to believe. You and I are to be engaged in relationships. We're to seek out, just like Jesus does here. He receives, he eagerly anticipates relationships with those who are unbelievers. Now, number three, though, number three, and this is very crucial, number three, we should have a redemptive focus in our relationships with those who are lost. We should have redemptive focus in our relationship with those who are lost. In other words, we're bringing the gospel to people through adherence to, to biblical standards. Jesus doesn't go engage in immorality in order to have sinners drawn to him. Those who are sinners who have been engaged in wrong conduct hear Jesus' message of grace and hope and forgiveness, and they're drawn to it. And so you and I are to have a redemptive focus in our relationship with those who are lost. I had a student come to me one time, and the student asked me, said, Now, Daniel, I hear a lot from you about sharing the gospel with people, but shouldn't we just be friends with people to be friends with them? Like, why would we make all our relationships about the gospel? And I said, Well, I appreciate what you're getting at, perhaps, if I'm understanding you correctly. You're right that our goal in relationships with people shouldn't just to be to get them to pray some prayer so that we can, like, you know, 
tell our friends, and look, I, I converted someone. But our goal in all relationships is, is Christ-centered. So, so, so I have a hard time understanding how I could be engaged in a relationship with someone who doesn't know the most precious person in the world to me, and if I really love them, not have a desire to communicate to them about that relationship. Number four, number four as we think about these, these thoughts in relationship to our fellowship with those who are lost, number four, uh, we're not to be influenced, we're not to be influenced by people who are committed to sinful lifestyles. So, uh, number one, we're, we realize we're converted sinners. Number two, we're to seek out real and close friendships with unbelievers. Number three, we should have a redemptive focus in our relationships with the lost. But number four, we need to make sure that we're not influenced by people who are committed to, to live a, a sinful life. And Scripture speaks a, a great deal about the danger, about the, the danger of, of being influenced by those who are committed to wickedness. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1, the, the Solomon says, verse 15, My son, do not walk in the way with them, with the way of sinners. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. In vain a net is spread out in the sight of a bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. Uh, a person who decides to walk in the way of the sinner is a person who, who, is, who is setting a trap for themselves. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so as we think about our redemptive focus in our relationship with unbelievers, we say, look, I understand that I, because of my nature, have the possibility of being influenced by people who are committed to sinful activities, sinful lifestyles. Number five, Number five, related to this, uh, we are not to engage in or love sinful activities. We recognize that that's, again, just a real possibility of our hearts. Number five, we're not to, we're not to engage in or love sinful activities, even if our goal is to reach the lost. And so sometimes a person will say, well, I'm engaged in this activity because I, I want to be like Jesus and, and reach the lost. But be careful. Be careful. Our goal is a redemptive focus in our relationships. It's hard to have a redemptive focus in your relationship if you're engaged in activity that's contrary to the gospel message you're trying to proclaim. Number six, number six, we're to recognize that there are barriers in our relationships with unbelievers. In other words, it, even though we have this desire to, to welcome sinners, to welcome the lost like Jesus does, there should be a recognition on our part that because these people have not received the forgiveness that Jesus Christ fully offers, unfortunately, even if we don't want this to be true, unfortunately, there's, there's going to be a, a barrier in our relationship. We're not going to be as close with them as we would desire to be because of the separation that, that happens when a person hasn't received the forgiveness that God offers and another person has. 2 Corinthians 6.14 warns us about this. It says, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? In other words, there are some close relationships that Scripture warns us about entering in with, with an unbeliever because 
there's going to be a barrier that, that, that exists there. The example that Paul gives in, in 1 Corinthians is the example of marriage. And so even though we desire to welcome those who are lost, to have a, a real and a close and a personal relationship with them, we recognize that there are some relationships we can't enter into with unbelievers. That's not what Jesus is advocating here. And then uh, finally, number seven, number seven, uh, you and I, or we, shouldn't be motivated in our relationships by fear of being condemned by others. We shouldn't be motivated in our relationships by a fear of being condemned by others. In, in other words, uh, we shouldn't say, well, if I start associating with these, these people, I know that they have a reputation, and if people see me uh, in a relationship with these people, they're going to say, oh, that, he's one of them, she's one of them. Our motivation in relationships is to see God glorified and God worshipped in the lives of others. I think those thoughts should help us as we understand what Jesus is and isn't saying in these parables, this, this one large parable in three parts about our relationship with the lost and what welcoming them looks like and what it doesn't look like. The heart attitude that sets these, these parables, this parable in motion, is a heart attitude that doesn't love the lost. The Pharisee, when the Pharisees and the scribes see Jesus welcoming and receiving sinners, their heart is bothered by that. They're disturbed deeply by that. The heart of Jesus sees the lost and desires there to be relationship and fellowship and reconciliation between the lost and God. And over the next coming weeks, we're going to examine what that looks like, what rejoicing over the lost looks like, what searching for the lost looks like, what finding a person who's lost looks like, how God responds to the lost, how we should respond to the lost, how the lost should respond to the, their lost state. It's going to be an exciting time. I I believe, as we look at God's great passion for the lost and how you and I should rejoice when the lost repent. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at Luke 15 together in the coming weeks, we pray that you'd be very gracious to us. Help us to pursue you with a, with a passionate heart, a fervent heart, and help us to, be, to pursue others with the same heart attitude that you do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.